0: manufacturing, supply chains, trade. Just for a second, let's think about that little supercomputer that lives in your pocket, your smartphone. Or actually, let's make it even less complex, a computer mouse. It takes a massive, sprawling, global system, thousands of parts and people from all over the world over many months, or even years, if you count conceptualization and design, to get that product to your desk. But what if you could do it all in a, quote, factory, the size of your one-bedroom apartment in a building down the street. The city isn't just a place where we live, it's a place where we work. And as we've thought about the future of the city, I've often wondered about the future of manufacturing. A few years ago, the notion manufacturing jobs would ever come back to America was seen as not only hopelessly naïve, but completely unnecessary. In the age of COVID, however, I think it's now obvious why maintaining manufacturing capability at home is so important. But might the more accurate cut on all of this look like we just change what it means to be a manufacturer? In the first place, everything is getting smaller.
1: Okay, I'm Matthew Putman. I'm the founder and CEO of Nanotronics. We started by making super resolution microscopes in order to scale industries that were difficult to scale otherwise. Things in nanotechnology, things in next generation semiconductors.
0: Matt and I talked about his company's journey from the microscope, His grand ambition with the work, the factory that lives inside your bedroom, and what this all means for the future of our city. Distributed, decentralized manufacturing. It is the nanofactory. From Founders Fund, I'm Mike Solana, and this is Anatomy of
1: Next. Microscopes. So a lot of questions right off the bat. That was a long time ago, but we still do some of that. (laughs) A lot of that. I guess, first of all, I mean, what
0: are some of the contexts in which microscopes would help these different industries and what exactly is the is the work that you're you're up to
1: yeah so as, as we get into this just so you know we'll try to think of so nanotronics the microscope and automation company um, You know, we make robotics as well and then nanotronics this new type of automating and making smart factories something we call aipc and you can kind of think of those as separate businesses even though they serve the same goal which is making sure that next generation of things that we consider important in the world and that the world, I think, considers important. Foundational technologies are scaled faster and less expensive. So some examples of what those are. And these apply to both, but certainly the microscope business is kind of specific to this. If you go into a lab, whether a university lab or a, re- a corporate lab, no matter whether they have electron microscopes that can see things at extremely small level or they have atomic force microscopes, There's this natural desire to want to use an optical microscope. You can see over a very large area. It's very intuitive. It's non-destructive to the sample. But it's limited by the diffraction limit of light. So it's physically not possible to see something smaller. Now, with interesting computational methods, including being able to iterate, change the degree of light rapidly, taking many different images, being able to use different types of machine learning detection and classifiers, which is the most interesting new way of doing this. You're able to see, to resolve smaller than this law of physics would say you should. At least you're able to trick it. So some of those things, the most obvious place where people want to see things small is electronics. You you see that it's pushed the limits of Moore's law down to seven nanometer nodes. But this sort of next generation of materials, that are three-dimensional architectures. And they have a lot of defects, a lot of flaws, so they're expensive. By using our techniques of imaging, classifying, and then in the process of making a part, actually using that training data to make corrective action. So you're imaging, you're collecting data, you're feeding into a recurrent neural net. By doing this, we are able to bring down the cost of these things. They're called uh, compound semiconductors, and they've been getting a lot of attention, and there's some fairly big companies making them, but they're making them for things like LEDs and other not-for-pure processors and next-generation electronics. Yeah, can you
0: give me some examples of these tiny structures that people are working on and what your company would then do? Like, how would you apply the work at your company to those Structures. I think a lot of people don't know any of this.
1: Okay, so. I'll give four examples, and then you can decide which are interesting at all or mm-hmm. which are just I've been around it too long and start to think this is normal way of talking. Mm-hmm. So, one example: if you look at the supply chain of a, an iPhone, for instance, there are hundreds of parts, thousands probably that go into that iPhone, and something like tens of different chips, from sensors to processors to the chips that light the screen. It encompasses a supply chain that goes goes throughout eight different countries or something. What we do is we take an image at each of those companies, at each of those layers of the process. So at one layer, you may have silicon and you're laying down another layer of something else. We're measuring both by taking images, by looking at what those images are, We're by narrowing in, automatically focusing on regions that are atypical or anomalous and telling the factory equipment. So the AI is speaking to the factory equipment to say, because we have those images, we've noticed something anomalous, either correct for it in the next layer, which is ideal, or You are at least able to pinpoint where in the process or which device out of many, many devices is a problem. Without this, it's extremely expensive and wasteful.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong. Generally, this would mean that with technology like this, we're approaching a world where manufacturing broadly can happen with a lot fewer people and... It can be sort of more decentralized. Like you could have small little manufacturing plants in the city, multiple, maybe 10, 20, 50, whatever.
1: You can just do more with less. Is that? That's completely true. And that's sort of at the heart of what I care about, nanotronics, even aside, what we're seeing, and we're trying to do it ourselves. We are doing it ourselves, where we do everything from machining to assembly to testing something out in a clean room to shipping it, this vertical manufacturing in a small 45,000 square foot building. This is what our customers, whether they're making quantum computing chips, whether they are doing uh, genome sequencing equipment, they can also avoid this crazy long supply chain that involves a lot of people. And countries and
0: countries. Throughout modern history, really since World War II, we've increasingly been looking at a manufacturing industry that is distributed globally, but still like controlled by a handful of massive players. This is bringing us to a place where you can, or like a little bit closer to a place where you can sort of build everything that you need
1: like right at home. Yeah, you see hints of this already with 3D printing, for mm-hmm. instance, and we actually did a lot of our prototypes by thinking, how are we going to simulate a factory? And I thought just simulating it on a computer wasn't sufficient enough. So I thought, you think about a lot of factories, we got, you got know, 50 3D printers and optimize those printers by using AI. That's a little factory. The barriers to entry are fairly low if you're going to make a physical thing using something like a 3D printer. The next layer of that is using something like a a reactor, which is still not that expensive. I mean, I always said that the next, you know, a long time ago that it would be nice if the next factory was built in a dorm room, not the next social network. Right. And that's getting to be more and more possible. And that's where we want to head to. Make this barriers to entry to getting into making foundational technologies similar to what the barriers to entry for making an app were over the last 20 or 30 years. Can you give me a sense of how manufacturing
0: works today? Just like paint me that picture. And then what is the world that you're working towards?
1: Sure. It's generally been an increasing trend over the last 60 years to move in a horizontal fashion for manufacturing. It seemed like the certainly logical path in a shrinking world. If you have a world where there's more and more free trade, go ahead and have partners. If there's cheaper labor one place than the other, take advantage of that. This is the way that people have generally been thinking. So you have a headquarters that might have some research. So it's this fancy building of PhDs, and they're doing research. they don't, not quite sure which parts of what they're doing will get out into the world. It moves yet to another facility where they do engineering. And that engineering part of it will be looking at last generation. This could be all in one country. This could be in multiple countries. And then you start sourcing to different partners, companies you don't know. So you will have, like I was saying with, his, with a smartphone, you will have a different supplier that'll make your screen, a different supplier that'll make your chips, and then somebody else to assemble it. It's been traditionally in the, you know, in the last decades in China the thought being that the labor was cheap and that things can be done by hand. And then you have something that not a single group could have done on their own. It's sort of an interesting narrative of the last 80 years or, or so, which you can't understand anything that You know, you can actually hold in your hands. I think it was Matt Ridley that said a a computer mouse was touched by a million people Mm -hmm. so that there wasn't a single place that you could do this. And there's this famous essay, I pencil This about supply chains being confusing. I'd like to challenge that idea and say now we should be able to print a mouse. We should have start four, to finish four, yeah. pieces, start. four pieces, of equipment in the size of a room where we are, which by the way, we're in this you know, small room. Mm-hmm. Was we should 10 be able- feet by 10 <laughs> feet. Yeah, exactly. We should be able to make a computer mouse. So that logic of the necessity for complex supply chains, I don't think is necessary going forward and shouldn't be desirable. Not because we want to isolate ourselves, but because we'd like a lot of small factories all over the world that it's better environmentally. It's better for fast output and fast iteration to new products. It lets you try and fail very quickly in ways that manufacturing doesn't usually work. And you know, we're doing that with our little factory. It's, you know, we make robotics, motion control, and our microscopes. But we're also encouraging this for friends that have other startups that are fairly well-financed startups, but also some larger companies that are looking at doing it this way. I really think it's the way of the future, more distributed factories. You were just talking about something, really
0: the iteration of products and like increasing the speed with which we can iterate with physical things. Right now in the tech industry, people are sort of famously tinkering with software and trying new apps and this or that, like changing them rapidly depending on how other people interact with them. There is... A lot of thinking on this subject of iteration, both in the pro and the con, I think like planning is really important for planning for complexity is really important. Long-term planning is really important, but iteration is certainly a part of, of the software ecosystem. And it's undoubtedly, you know, a part of, of the reason we've been able to create so many successful companies. And the question is really like how much is iteration and how much should be planned, but in hardware this is really, really difficult because it's so expensive. Can you talk a little bit more about this, about what it means in hardware and with physical things and inventing yeah. things? What what is a world of? We're not really rapidly prototyping things right now and experimenting and and, and tweaking. And what does that look like? What's the future of that in yeah. physical things? Yeah, no, it's like?
1: true. Um, the word agility is hardly ever used for anything physical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you know, the, the understandable part of it is, for instance, we work with a company that makes hard drives, the largest hard drive maker. They have a wafer that comes off of their production line every four minutes that we're testing multiple hundred layers, a couple hundred layers of their process. It's a $100,000 per wafer. Things can't go (laughs) wrong. You can't play around. You know, I mean, you could have all of a major website go down for a few minutes and it would be okay, And that couldn't go down. So the risk aversion, not to mention if you're dealing with the pharmaceuticals or something, is pretty great. However, you can take the very mundane things and see how we're doing it for ourselves and then I can talk a little bit about how others that we work with do it. Here, you can imagine our, our systems as being some robotics, everything feeding into a microscope that measures something. Now, an engineer would normally use some type of software, a CAD drawing, some type of, they would be engineers. They would then send it away to some contract shop to get something made. A few weeks later, it would come back. They would try it. Here, what we do is they take an AI model. So they take three different AI models, and they run it through a system, something called a a GAN, a generative adversarial network, where they have multiple different models competing to see which is the optimal model for making something. When they do this, there's no danger to actually trying these out and having them printed while they're working. So they'll have a part that's 3D printed, maybe not robust enough to be in production, but a 3D-printed part that they can take and put into our machine to see if it works. Or they could measure different physical properties of it. If it does, they already have the model that they can send to our factory, which will be in the same building downstairs. But right now we have our own factory in, in California that goes start to finish manufacturing. But we will have this right next to research soon here. And they will just click a button and it will be machined and whatever material you want and go into our, into our product. So it's completely agile. It's as fast as recompiling code. And it's mostly automated. It's wow. mostly done through the AI models themselves, using reinforcement learning agents, doing a number of different models. There was a time when we get a call from NVIDIA that Nanotronics is one of the largest users of AWS for neural nets. It was shocking. Us a little company, and we're using <laughs> one. But that's because we really abide by this philosophy that if we, can, if, if we can use the power of neural nets to be able to iterate hardware almost instantaneously, then we should. Once we already have those models picked, we can make those local, and we never have to deal with, with any cloud server again. But this is how we can iterate very quickly. So what we try to do, is take the optimal models that we've developed for ourselves and deliver those not connected to the cloud, completely on the edge with our systems to customers, and the appropriate model will work for their rapid iteration and increase of yields. Now, I'm wondering, I mean, it's still, at the end of the
0: day, physical stuff is still more expensive than playing around with things on a computer screen. So what about, you know, you're you're iterating, you have all of these new things that don't work. How do we recycle? How do we like take them apart and start over? Is there anything in there
1: that... So this is what's most exciting to me. And it sort of came from inspiration for one of our advisors, Eric Drexler, who coined the term nanotechnology Mm in 1986. And this inspired me since 1986. Shows I'm an old guy. Silicon Valley, which is that it's not about recycling if you make it perfectly the first time. So the way that we do this is we don't go as far as doing molecular nanotech yet. Nobody's quite doing it yet, although we're getting kind of close with other companies. But if you imagine, I'm just going to give the 3D printing example, but you can imagine this if you're layering chips, if you're doing genomic sequencing, if you're making LiDAR, you can imagine it for any application. But imagine it with 3D printing. If I were to take a layer and print it, so let's say there's 500 layers to a process of printing, and I were to print one layer and there's an anomaly in it, or even worse, there's an anomaly in layer 50 and you've just wasted something. Instead of stopping that, because you have reinforcement learning agents that are rewarded or penalized, just like AlphaGo did with, with, the, game, with the game of Go, You do the same thing in a manufacturing environment and you say, that move, what is the next move I need to take to correct for that anomaly on that first layer? So you have a group of reinforcement learning agents that don't care about what happens on a single layer. They care that it optimizes it for being as good as possible, for having the qualities that you want at the end. How are you defining good? You can define it in a number of ways. So with our early experiments, we did a 3D print and we just said, we're going to measure it with a tensile tester. So at the end, the thing looked like a dog bone and you take it and you pull it and you see if it's strong and it's repeatably strong and you measured the dimensions. So you say that I'm working in this constrained space, like AlphaGo, working in the constrained space of you had, you know, you have stones, you have a board, you have the art constrained space was it had to be the same size as was designed and it had to have optimal strength. So, no matter what agent you use, it has to do that. But then you give other reinforcement learning agents, a bunch of little AIs, different ways that they, that they have to get there. So, you have one that says, for instance, I'm going to reward you if you use the least amount of material possible to achieve that strength and those dimensions. And then you maybe give another reward to a different agent that says, I'm going to do it as fast as possible. These all sound good, but they may not converge. Those may be in opposition to each other. So then you have another AI network that figures out, and in real time, every time you're printing, which of these two agents can work together for that ultimate goal. And it works. And it's the first time it's worked in manufacturing. So we found that sometimes instead of 500 layers that the design said would take to print this, sometimes the AIs would decide 450 layers is the best way to correct for those anomalies. A human could never have figured that out. Now, you could take that and and think about it for many different processes. When you're growing crystals the way that semiconductors work and the way that really modern electronics work, you grow crystals on top of each other in a vapor reactor. So it's still an additive process. You change maybe the heat, you change the amount of gas flow, you do it in real time, but you're not making those decisions. The AI is making. them. So all this to answer your question of how do you recycle this? How do you not just have a bunch of physical waste is you get it right. Right. And you just produce less waste. You produce less waste because you're having these AI agents working together to make sure that they achieve optimal quality. I'm wondering, it seems like, I mean, this is, we could apply this to sort of
0: every aspect of our life from like the clothes we wear to the food we eat to sort of all waste management processes, energy efficiencies. They're just places where we have so much room to just become more efficient as, as like a people.
1: Yeah, more efficient and more interesting, right? (laughs) Those things that, you know, if you think about stagnation of technology, I was thinking about this when I dropped my you know, my iPhone 10. <laughs> and I went to get a new one and I decided to get an iPhone 8 because I didn't recognize anything significantly better about the iPhone 10 and it cost twice as much. And I thought that's actually really rare for humanity to have this happen. I mean, there was a time when, when we believed in the government, they gave us the Manhattan Project, the Apollo program. We, there were things we believed in. And then we believed in Apple. Now, Apple could be, we say Microsoft or anything. We believed in some type of industrial tech thing that was going to get us excited and give us envy to go buy the next thing. And we wanted the next. And if you go back, it was even industrial revolution. The same thing happened. You had commodification, new exciting things being built all the time. I think the last 150 years, this is the way we're used to living. And now I don't want the newest iPhone. That's a pretty big deal. And that, so not only do, is there a lot of waste and inefficiency, there's a lot of room to get better. And that's what gets really exciting. How do you make something that is much, much better than the current iPhone? How does this reshape the world that we're living in? Like, I mean, just like paint
0: a picture for me. I mean, we we have this kind of manufacturing now in the world. Electronics is a big part of it.
1: What does it look like? Paint me that picture. Yeah. I mean, the best thing I can think of is that, it gives humans a chance to be humans again. So the first thing we do is before we even look at these next generation of products, let's think about what our lives are and what we care about. And a lot of what I care about is that people can be creative and aren't harnessed by a certain false scarcity that I think exists in the world today and eliminating that scarcity as well. So. A lot of it is what will we be doing with the day? And what this allows, if you can picture the things I've talked about, what it pictures is giving, what it imagines is giving humans time to come up with the next thing they want to create. Human imagination isn't limited. What's limited is our ability to actually build something. Mm-hmm. It's too expensive. It requires collaboration across this supply chain we talked about, it requires this idea that we need an education that is very specific to this, when it may very well involve drawing a picture of what you want and challenging a group of AIs to be able to build that in optimal ways. That's a completely different way of thinking about what our possibilities are. So the picture I'm gonna create for the world is going to be uniquely things that I, I, I care about. But the point of, of creating a foundation is the point that it can be what you care about. You know, if you invent a railroad, it's up to, the, to what you're going to package and put and ship. <laughs> you know, what are you going to move yeah. on that railroad? But it was pretty clever to invent, to invent the railroad or to develop steel or to build towers and skyscrapers and figure out what offices to put in them. That's what I think our goal is, is to figure, make sure that there is a foundation for anybody to create something, whether you do think that the net convergent device should be a, an implant, whether you think that you want to focus heavily on, on having a type of replicator that will bring you food right away. Yeah, Star or Trek. I mean, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, I a super influenced by Star Trek and I've been told, don't, you know, don't use Star Trek in another interview about anything. But you know, I think basically a Replicator is a good image of sort of the ultimate achievement of that humanity can have. Yeah, this is. I mean, this is
0: if the goal is abundance, is yes. a world where we don't have to worry about then material constraints. Replicator. We don't have yeah. material constraints. Right. The replicator is just. Right. I mean, it's like the highest ideal almost.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
0: How does this change the city? So this mm-hmm. this season of Anatomy of Next, we are looking at every aspect or looking as many aspects of. Of the city of San Francisco, as we can that are mm-hmm. sort of not working. And we're trying to fix them. We're trying to rebuild the city into something that you know is potentially perfect. We are just talking about Star Trek a second ago. I mean, Star Trek is the capital of the Federation. Yeah. Current iteration of San Francisco, the current version of San Francisco does not look like the capital of the Federation right. um, in Star Trek. How do we get to that city is the big high level question. I'm wondering what manufacturing does. Yeah. Uh, what what does this kind of manufacturing do to the city? How does it change the way it functions and the way
1: that it looks, paint yeah. that picture for me. So it doesn't make any difference that what I'm going to say is, you know, Nanotronics is located in New York City. Mm-hmm. We're in the Brooklyn Navy Yards in New York, but the same thing can apply completely to San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco is exactly the right side of, of, a, of a city that should be embracing this type of small distributive manufacturing. But I, I can speak from the experience of being here in New York. There used to be the highest concentration of manufacturing on the East Coast, right where Nanotronics is located right now. Cities are the perfect place to be close to customers, to be close to talent, to be you know vibrant and a, a place where you both want to live and be instead of go to. If done correctly, automation does a few things that people sometimes are scared of or think of as bad. But when put into the context of of creating greater abundance, eliminating scarcity, it becomes very desirable to have places that have fewer amount of workers. You don't have to have 100,000 people per factory because a lot of it is automated, but you can have 100,000 different factories. So it's really this smart factory idea rather than just automated. It's not just robots. It's robots that are making corrective action and creating things that are more replicator-like. I'm not saying we're to that point or even close to that point. But if you had this, this is a complete, wonderful way that a city should work. A city should be interspersed with art galleries and art museums to inspire us, a symphony that we go to and let our mind go someplace else. We should walk the streets and smell the streets and see the food and the different cultures interacting and colliding and then go and create and build things right where that's the possibility yeah and we're so, and we haven't thought that way in a long
0: time well we couldn't because we have separated the imagineers so to speak and the manufacturers by a tremendous amount of physical space yeah. we physically put space between them and so of course it's like things are going to slow down if we're imagining over here and then sending something to a shop across the world and then they're building exactly what we said and then it ha- has to be shipped back to us and then we have to look at it and then we have to see if it the way it interacts with the people around right. us it's like there there's just all this space between us yeah I mean, and this closes the space the future is sort
1: of closing that space it's re-engaging maybe with the people around us exactly i mean you know and some of the some of this is you, you could blame the fault of cities the fault of Industry or academia, whatever it might be. Or the be, internet. But, I mean, I love or, the internet the, and the promise
0: of it, but in a, in, in a
1: way, it's allowed us to sort of escape each other. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is definitely true. We don't realize that we're not communicating when we think we are. Are we really collaborating on a project in the same way as being physically together? But a lot of things are just driven by the the ability of the technology that we made for for internet search and recommendation algorithms now to be used to build things. You didn't have that before. I mean, I I grew up in a factory town. I grew up in Akron, Ohio, where it was the rubber capital of the world. We made tires. And the whole supply chain of a car was like that. You would have a different town for a different part of that car. That, in this world, is not necessary. Akron, Ohio, could build entire cars. I think you need these, these cities that have a couple hundred thousand people to several million people become perfect manufacturing towns in this type of world. And that's kind of new. I mean, you can now look and say that it doesn't make sense that General Electric, and we can see this if we look at how well General Electric has done Mm -hmm. recently, but that they have a big research center in upstate New York. This is a massive research center and there's no production at that place. That doesn't make sense to us now. Pre-World War II, it might have made sense. But that's not necessary anymore. Put them right in San Francisco. Right. Or I'd say in New York, is nice too.
0: You know, another thing that people are just sort of endlessly talking about right now is the way that robots are going to take our jobs. Now, I think the the really scary thing about this for a technologist should be that I don't really see this happening. Like right now, like we we kind of don't see automation does not seem to be working quite the same way that people thought it was going to work a handful of years ago. You know, we're talking about like universal basic income and stuff to, to pay for all these people who are supposed to be jobless. Well, I don't, where is the mass joblessness? Don't see it. But in a world where automation is working, and suddenly you have all of these people who can manufacture themselves. I mean, the big fear was, how are we going to reschool all of these people who are doing one thing and get them to do another thing? In this world, it's, it's sort of it's easier to be a manufacturer. It actually empowers more people to be
1: working with computers and machines. Yeah, there's so much there to what, what you said that I think about all the time. I also certainly don't see a world where automation has taken over yet that said i'd like to see a world like yeah. that yeah the goal of humanity i can't imagine being wanting to do the jobs that robotics could replace and that can't even be white collar jobs right, this idea spreadsheets that, and yeah, punching numbers into exactly, columns exactly exactly it's not it's not just what you're going to replace the factory worker that's breaking his hands all day. No, I mean there's a lot of monotony and a lot of jobs. I think we should automate as much as we can. I think we should bring as much productivity because of that. And I think then questions of UBI and things like this are are great. Why not? Right? That there becomes enormous amounts of of money in the system and that's a great idea. Then people can, to my point, think about being creative and doing things and being builders. I guess builders can mean so many different things. I do have
0: one kind of weird fear. In a world where everything is automated in this way, it seems like we have layers and layers and layers of computing, you know, like computing layer on top of computing layer on top of computing layer, helping us build and design things and kind of thinking for us. What happens in that highly complex world when something breaks down and people
1: are sort of not capable of thinking on their own anymore? OK, the first answer is the more you automate, the more time you give people to learn how to think, which is, I think, more important than retraining. I, I mean, retraining is, is kind of a funny thing because as soon as you retrain somebody for another job, that job becomes no longer the job that they need to have. And, but freeing up people to think, and that doesn't always mean you know, reading great philosophy. There are a number of ways that you can learn to think. We find here that great gamers are really good at being creative and building the things we need to build. But you have to have time to be able to play games. So people, I always say that one because well, if you, if you don't have a job, you'll just play video games all the time. Well, those are the people I want to go and grab to work <laughs> in animatronics with that. So, so ultimately, they get to think more. But then also, I go back to a point I made earlier about supply chains. We don't know how to make anything right now without these computing layers. We don't know how to make the mouse that a million hands had to touch to get there. So the worry that an automated system that is in a ten by ten room mm-hmm. is going to be too smart for us to ever have to think about how to make something seems very strange. Right, to me. you're saying we I already live from, in that world but we don't understand how anything we, works. We live in that world much more than the world that I'm talking about. It's a the world a I'm talking system. about, you can you can still debug the system. Yeah. I can't de- I, at least to some extent reverse engineering becomes a lot easier in a system that is confined to this room than across a supply chain of 600 different suppliers and a million different hands that have touched it. I love that answer. I guess my last question
0: is what don't I know I don't know about this? I'm not an expert in any of this kind of stuff, so I'm wondering if there's like a question I didn't ask, like what is the question I should have asked? what's the what's
1: the thing that people should be thinking about here what are you excited about this isn't nearly as concise of an answer as you want but i want people whether they feel they have power or they feel they don't have power to get over the despair that there is nothing to look forward to anymore and they don't need to do that by listening to me talk about it here they can do this by touring our factory They can do this by trying themselves and seeing what could happen with just some guidance as to what that is. So giving hope is not just about, it's not giving hope in a kind of religious sense of there's a world out there that may happen one day. It's saying this is already being built. Let's go and take a look and let's challenge it and say, I want to make something that I just thought of and not be embarrassed to say it because it probably is possible now.
0: It's like getting over the sense of not being able to do things, which is weird. People are maybe weirdly, they have this strange sense of powerlessness. That There seems to be so many amazing things all around us, but
1: people don't feel like they can participate. Well, I, I think that they're rightly disillusioned by the things that are looked at or that do have power right now. If you know that the thing that is... The most powerful in the world is an advertising engine. Once you figure that out, it's not incredibly exciting and hopeful for what you can create. Oh, right. It right. may be very useful for how you navigate life. You can do search better, you can have maps that are better, but it doesn't empower you to create. I think that that's the big difference between seeing that there is progress in the world but not seeing that you, that, that you are empowered to create something that is progressive. Last chance, just paint me the picture that you wanna live in, the picture that we're working towards. Yeah, all of these things, by the way, are, are things that we're working with other companies on. So I'll be, I'd like to live in a world where there is a $100 genome that works along with a doctor to make personalized medicine and can you, know, you can use CRISPR to make personalized medicine. I would like to live in that world possible. I'd like to live in a world where we have quantum computing not used as a military tool, but used as one for creating the next generation of agriculture that, that, that is fast and abundant. I'd like to live in a place where we have desilinization by using graphene that is being able to man- manufactured better than it currently is. I'd like to live in a world of autonomous vehicles that never get in accidents. We could go on. (laughs) But really, I mean, my, my imagination is no different than anybody's. We could take and just break down each of those and figure out how it could happen.
0: You are listening to Anatomy of Next.